0: You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. We're going to give ourselves to the Word of God this morning, which is great. Uh, My name's Alan. I'm one of the leaders here. If you're a guest or a visitor, it's really good to see you. I hope that you've enjoyed your time with us this morning. I've met people from the States. Hello, where are you? Hello, Tyler and Megan. Hi, Megan. Nice to meet you guys. Great to have you here. Uh, We heard a song from Lottie earlier about the sound of revival. And I was thinking, what does revival sound like? And I think it sounds a little bit like the scene from the throne room of heaven in Revelation 5 when a people from every tribe and nation and tongue are gathered in worship and adoration of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for the the sins of the world and to reconcile a people for God from every nation. And I think that in our context, revival is not going to look like something from 1750. It's going to look like Revelation 5. It's going to be more and more what happens in Revelation is starting to happen here on earth. The church will begin to gather people from every nation and tribe and tongue and that will, the sound of heaven will reverberate somehow here. That's what I think revival is going to be like. And yes, I think people will be, become Christians and that's wonderful but you need to shake it out of your, your noggin that we've got to go back to the 1700s and the Wesleys and the, the Edwards or whoever else. That's great, but that was in the past. And Revival Today, I think, looks like God building a beautiful, multi-racial, multi-ethnic, glorious, multi-coloured church. Can I get an amen? amen. Now, that's not the sermon. <laughs> that's, that's the first sermon. <laughs> uh, last year, um, last year, goodness me, um, I started a series on 1 Samuel 17, Uh, which is the chapter of the Old Testament in the Christian Bible that contains the justly famous story of David and Goliath. Here it is up on the screen, in a sense, whether that's what David and Goliath really looked like, I don't know. But there we are. Uh, And when we paused before Christmas, um, probably about a month before Christmas, actually, we paused at the point where David, the hero of the story, has just arrived at the battlefronts, where Goliath of Gath, this enormous, probably six foot nine, seven foot-ish, giant of a man, Philistine champion, was terrorizing the Israelite army. Now David overheard the frightened Israelite soldiers speaking about the grand reward that King Saul would give to the man who topples the giants. Basically money, sex, and power. You'll get get the king's daughter. You'll be free in Israel. You'll be part of the royal family. Whoa! It's quite a spectacular reward. And David can't believe his ears. He thinks it's extraordinary. He can't believe that, although this, this giant man sounds and looks intimidating, he can't believe that there would be such a massive reward on offer because, look, he's just a pagan warrior. And who are we? We are the armies of the living God. And this big guy has just defied God by defying God's armies. So David can't believe what he hears, and he speaks about it. He's the first person in the story to speak about God, actually. Now, David's words get him in trouble. David has a big brother called Eliab. He has uh, a few older brothers, actually, but the three oldest are at the battle as well. And Eliab, the biggest brother, hears David and gets cross and rebukes him. He calls him to question David's motives. He thinks that David is just there to watch the battle. You know, David is there to sit down with a massive tub of popcorn in a lazy chair with his phone on set to film, like to his Facebook live feed. Ha <laughs> ha, let's get the battle, yes. And Eliab is cross. David very wisely ignores Eliab and carries on speaking as he did before. And it's important for us to see when we read texts like 1 Samuel 17, it's important to understand that the speeches in the Bible, speeches in biblical narrative, especially the first speeches, are very, very important as some kind of index of character. The person who is speaking, and their first words are really important because it says something, it communicates something. So David's first words are all about, are indignant because he thinks of God. This is the armies of the living God. It says something about the character of the person when we hear their speeches. Eliab if you remember the older brother who, uh, who, is, um, who rebukes David he was rejected by the prophet Samuel when Samuel came to, uh, to David's house to his dad Jesse's house to anoint a new king Eliab is the first to come out and God says to Samuel I've rejected him don't look at his, his, his height his physical prowess no he's not the one I've rejected him And God never says why he rejects Eliab, but when we hear Eliab speak in 1 Samuel 17, we maybe go, ah, hmm, all this bitterness and suspicion and accusation of David. Maybe that's what God saw in Eliab's heart. So, you see, narratives, speeches reveal the heart of people. They show something about what's in people's hearts, they become important within the story. Anyway, I'm trying to give you just a little snapshot, a nutshell of where we've been up to so far. And today we're going to be moving on with David uh, coming into contact with Saul, who is, the, uh, who is the king of Israel. Before we get into the, the words of 1 Samuel 17, I want to just also highlight for you that when we read this chapter, you need to realize the underlying the story of David and Saul and Goliath and everything in 1 Samuel 17 is a theological theme. There's something about what God is doing that underlies this story and it's really important for how we interpret what is happening. The theme is election and rejection. Divine choice and divine spurning. God's choosing one, and rejecting another. In other words, I think that the whole of 1 Samuel 17 is one big, long, dramatized illustration of how God has rejected Saul from being king over Israel and has chosen David. And this whole story illustrates that very thing, the demise of Saul, his recession, and the rise of David so much within this story only really makes sense if we understand it with that theological overview or undergirding or surrounding however you want to frame that so let's pick up the story then in 1 Samuel 17 verse 31 David's words might have gotten him into trouble with his big brother but they also gain him an audience with Saul and this is how it all kicks off When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So, look, straight away, this proves that Eliab was all wrong. Eliab accuses David of all this stuff, but he's wrong, because David isn't there to just get a great movie of it that he can post online or something. He's not there just for some cheap thrill, seeing some bloodshed, watching some action, war, no, he's there to do the job. He's there to, he says, "I'll, oh, I'll do it. Don't be afraid. I'll take him on. This isn't some guy who's just there to watch it all unfold and get a bit of, you know, a bit of a buzz out of being there. So Eliab is wrong. He says to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. That is Goliath. The ranks of Israelite soldiers, however many there were, can't be made to fight even when the promised reward is spectacular. And it's because their hearts have failed. David has to say, don't let anyone's heart fail. I'll do it. Their hearts have failed them. They're completely immobilized. What, what do we do? There's this giant guy. Look at him. Listen to what he's saying. And David has to come and say, no, don't, don't let your heart fail. I will step up to the mark. David's heart hasn't failed because he is alert to the reality of God. God. He's the only one in the story who is alert to the reality of God. His brothers are cynic. The Israelite soldiers are afraid and their hearts have failed them. Saul's losing the plot. David alone is alert to the reality of God. And that makes all the difference. Does it make the difference for you? You alert to the reality of God or are you a Christian pragmatist, a good plotter and planner, strategist, perhaps a really good sin manager, but able to navigate your way through life without really giving attention to God? Lord forbid that any of us should be that kind of person. God grant that all of us like David, might have hearts that don't fail because they are alert to the reality of God. Saul's first speech in this chapter gives away that he isn't alert to the reality of God. This is what he says. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy and he has been a warrior from his youth. This is Saul the pragmatist speaking. No no sense of faith, no sense of God, just a calculation based on sense, data, and a heart that has failed. But really, we could be a bit more sympathetic to Saul, couldn't we? I mean, he's right, isn't he? David's just a boy. What is a boy going to do with a 6'4"? What's a boy going to do with Tyson Fury? (laughs) What's a boy going to do with a gigantic warrior? How on earth is that going to change anything? Well, it's worth noting that the Hebrew word translated boy is not age-specific. It's not age-specific. There is a spectrum of meaning for the Hebrew word na'ar. There you go. Oh, I wasn't going to use a Hebrew word. It makes me sound like too much of a geek. But there we are. Slipped out my mouth. Nahar, the Hebrew word for boy. It can also mean youth, young man. It can even describe a young soldier. So to imagine Nahar as being, you know, my son, a 10-year-old child, well, maybe, but also maybe not. The perhaps romantic interpretation of the story Has David, the child, taking on Goliath, the grizzled giant, and overcoming? And of course, that's a powerful narrative, because here we have God who miraculously empowers the weak and unlikely to overcome the strong, or perhaps to use the weak to defeat the strong. And that interpretation of David and Goliath funds all manner of modern analogies still, from sports to geopolitics. It just does, doesn't it? David and Goliath, the weak defeat the strong, it's everywhere. It's rightly one of the most famous Bible stories that there is. Nevertheless, the Hebrew doesn't demand that we make David a child. And I just want you to keep that in mind as we work our way through the story, as it unfolds. The conversation between. Saul and David moves on quickly. And Saul, uh, David protests to Saul. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. I don't know whether you've ever seen a, a lion or a bear in the flesh before, outside of the zoo, I mean. Uh, I, I once met a girl in Canada who, uh, who said that as her family were driving through British Columbia, they stopped in a rest stop to go to the, go to the, the, bath, the bathroom, and, uh, and she ran off into the woods, and her dad said, oh, we're careful, but she didn't listen. She kind of charged up a hill, like looking up, charging up as she kind of got to the top of the hill. She suddenly heard like a, a sort of panting noise, and she sort of stopped and looked up, and there was a grizzly bear. Full-on nine-foot grizzly bear. And my friend's name was Cindy, and she said, I, I, at that, that moment, I forgot everything that you're meant to remember about what you do when you encounter a bear. Some bears, you're supposed to drop dead. But, well, not drop dead. <laughs> a fright! Some bears, you're supposed to drop down and play dead. Other bears, you're supposed to wave your arms and make a lot of noise. Um, and so she said, I... I I dropped down and played dead. But it was a grizzly, and that's not what you're supposed to do. (laughs) She said, when its nose touched my nose, I screamed, (laughs) which you're also not supposed to do with a grizzly. And she screamed and got up and ran. You know, That's all the things that you're not supposed to do. Anyway, she, uh, she obviously she escaped to tell the tale because you know, I, I heard it from her own her own lips. Slightly scary, I just think a slightly scary story about a bear. There you go. I've never seen a bear. I've never seen a lion in the wild either. But I have seen the revenant, <laughs> and so I know very well from watching Leonardo DiCaprio get mauled to within an inch of his life. That bears are pretty serious, big, beasty, scary animals. And David says, When a bear or a lion came after my dad's sheep, I would chase it. And, and if it grabbed one of them, I would grab it and rescue the sheep from its jaws and I would strike it and kill it. If this is a 10 year old boy, I'm scared. <laughs> And if you've got a tenure, don't bring him to church, please. Like, gosh, fear of, man alive. This is, whatever you th- I mean, here's the thing. I know that you might be sitting here and you might be kind of like a, a sort of a rationalist, modernist, critical thinker. Oh, come on, come on. Surely, surely the author of 1 Samuel 17 doesn't literally mean a lion or literally mean a bear. Well, I don't know, but it says lion or bear the point seems to be that David is fricking rock hard. He's not, he's not some like, limp kid. Like, oh, I've just come off playing on PlayStation and he wants me to fight a bear. Nah, he's tough. He's tough. David says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And that's really interesting. It's interesting because there's been a bit of a transition here. Back in 1 Samuel 16, which, okay, granted, we haven't preached on all of 1 Samuel 16, but in 1 Samuel 16, when God sends the prophet Samuel to Jesse's house to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the king over at Israel, they go through a bunch of sons, including Eliab and Abinadab, and, Eliab, and God says, no, not this one, not this one, not this one, and Saul's thinking, "Some prophet, I am. Have you got any more sons? And Jesse says, well, yes, that's the youngest, but he's just—he's with the sheep. David's with the sheep. Literal, actual, meh, sheep. Do you like that? Yeah. When we're reintroduced to David in 1 Samuel 17, the first we see of David in 1 Samuel 17, he is going back and forwards from his father's sheep to the battle back and forwards from Saul to the sheep to the battle to the sheep to Saul to the sheep to Saul and here finally as his words his alertness to the reality of God have brought him into an audience in chapter 17 with Saul he now says your servant used to keep sheep for his father there's been a transition do you see he's with the sheep He's back and forth between the sheep and Saul. Now I used to keep sheep. Why is that important? Well, I think that the implication is that David has been prepared, having kept faithfully his dad's actual sheep, to now step into being the shepherd of God the Father's sheep. All right, granted the text does not say God the Father's sheep, But God is portrayed as the shepherd of his people in the scriptures. And David is a man after God's own heart who happens to be a shepherd. And he's a shepherd who is faithful to the sheep and who is alert to God. And so at a point of Israel's massive need, who should God bring along and push forward into the situation but the one man who is alert to him and who knows that these are God's sheep And just like I killed lions and bears when they came and tried to take one of my dad's sheep away, ha, these are God's sheep. How much more will I be defended and helped to overcome this great beast? We're witnessing, friends, the rise of David and the demise of Saul. We're seeing the rise of the shepherd king who is God's anointed and the man after God's own heart. And then notice this. Before Saul can even reply, David goes on. David said, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. There's something crucial happening here. First of all, notice that Saul doesn't get the chance to speak David speaks, and then it says, and David said, again. David says something, and just when you expect, maybe Saul will say something. Well, David butts in once more. Is he just talkative? Does that mean something else? Well, yes, it probably does mean something else. Robert Alter, the Jewish scholar, suggests that the absence of a speech here from Saul suggests that Saul is not persuaded. Saul is like, mmm. Saul is still the hard-hearted, hard-headed pragmatist, and David has to button again to try and push forward again. Look, I'll do it because God rescued me in the past. God will do it again now. But something else is happening here that's really important, and this impinges on all of us one way or the other. David has spoken about his past and he's spoken about how he protected his father's sheep by fighting and even killing wild animals. But now, now he interprets his own history as God's salvation. David doesn't say, It wasn't me, it was the Lord. <laughs> I didn't touch the bear or the lion, really. I just kind of waved my hands around and prayed a prayer, and God killed him. Oh, well, you should have seen it. It was amazing. Mm, no, that doesn't happen at all. David never says that. David says, I killed them. I beat them. I, you know, however he did it. <laughs> Somehow, I killed the, the lion and the bear. God delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. But, uh, hang on a minute, but w- How? You, you, you killed them but God delivered you was it God or was it you and here we are as western rationalists largely who get our, we can't get our heads around this how can it be me but also God or it, it must it must either be all God or all me it can't how can it, it can't be both how does that work and the Bible plays with our notions that are rooted in all kinds of, I beg, by the way, I'm sorry, if you, if you are not of Western origin, I, excuse me for using Western analogies at this point, but, but you need to understand that Western people on the whole are, are just are hard-headed rationalists. Who, who kind of, they, they like to measure and control everything. And you know, the idea of God operating in, in, in the kind of created order is a bit troublesome for some of them. And here we have a biblical text where it's not, it seems as though David says, I did this, but then he says, but God did this. And the Bible doesn't allow us to collapse into, well, it's either all just me or it's all just God. David would never say, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. David would probably say it was me and the Lord because for David being in relationship with God is a covenant relationship where you are a partner with God where you can act in a particular way in faithfulness to God and expect that God in faithfulness will act to keep up his part of the bargain. You act in faithfulness and God will deliver you. David sees himself as being faithful, not just to his dad, but to God. And so no wonder he sees that God delivered him from the paw of the lion and from the the bear. God's salvation was outworked in David's actions. And David's actions were included in God's salvation. The two things come together and hold together, cohere even if we can't get our heads around exactly how that works and now david looks at goliath and he says this is going to be no different i'll I'll front up to him because the god who rescued me the god who saved as i saved my father's sheep will save his sheep through my actions You don't need to divide it all up into divine action and human action with a massive gulf in between. God works through you and through your actions. So this is David we're seeing, the shepherd king, the man after God's own heart, and Israel's champion. Now Saul does speak. So Saul said to David, go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and then he tried tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I'm not used to them. So David removed them. I bet I can guess what you're thinking. Maybe not completely. I bet bet you're thinking, hurry up. (laughs) Or you might be thinking about this story. Ah, Yeah, I know what's going on here. This is all about how it's just important to be authentic. But you shouldn't. You, you don't have to do things the way that somebody else says to do them because you can't do that. And it's really important to be authentic. And what this story teaches us is that unless you do it your way, then it's not really true. And it's not. You shouldn't really do that. And you know, God can't put someone. David doesn't put someone else's armor on. It doesn't fit. And you know, you've got to do it your way and not put someone else's armor on. Yeah and no. Mainly no. <laughs> Remember, this is a story that has as its undergirding election and rejection. God has rejected Saul and has chosen and anointed David. And all this story and irony and everything comes to a crashing head in this moment. Notice what Saul says. It's so ironic. Saul says to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. Oh, can you you feel the wrench in that as a reader? This is the man whom God has rejected affirming God's presence with the man that he has chosen. And he probably doesn't even realize it. And we read it and think, oh, this is so sad. It's not like Saul is going, yes, go for it. Well, he might be but it's a little bit empty because the very next thing that he does is put armor on David. And it's not, that it's, it's not just that it's Saul's armor that he's trying to put on David. The fact is it's a, a, a coat of mail and a helmet and a sword, which is exactly what Goliath has. If you go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel 17, Goliath has chain mail and a sword and a massive, a big kind of bronze helmet. And Saul is so caught up in the kind of military, technological, non-God perspective that he can only imagine that the way to overcome this problem is by putting the same stuff on David. So although he says, go and may the Lord be with you, it's really shallow and empty and ironic he doesn't even realize that in the economy of the storyteller, he's, this is God affirming David as his chosen one. It's so sad. The demise of Saul and the rise of David. Deeply ironic. Even more ironic is that in 1 Samuel 16, there's a story about how David ended up serving Saul as his armor bearer you can find that later in 1 Samuel 16 and here now in 1 Samuel 17 what have we got we have got Saul serving as David's armor bearer Here's Saul putting armor and equipping David for battle Saul was functioning like the armor bearer in every single way the storyteller is trying to show us look God's anointed look God's rejected. Look, he's being affirmed, and this is God's doing. Look, this one fading away. This is what we're supposed to see, or at least what the storyteller expects us to see. One of the intriguing things about this whole chapter is that God doesn't show up as a character. Have you noticed that? God doesn't appear as a character there's no moment where and God said and the Lord said to so and so that, that doesn't happen at all in 1 Samuel 17 at all 58 verses God isn't a character in the whole of 1 Samuel 17 so what do we do with that then? How do we, surely the Bible is about God. Why? How, how come God isn't here? Well, we have Saul, the king that God rejected. We've got Goliath. We've got the armies of God. We've got Eliab, who also was rejected. We've got the soldiers who are fearful and think there's this is great reward for them if one of them can, can dare to take on Goliath. And then we've got David, the man after God's heart, rejected by his family, yet chosen and beloved of God. I think what happens is that the storyteller expects us to read this as a story where God is the one behind the scenes pulling the strings, orchestrating the action. We're supposed to understand that behind this political, military, almost technological in some ways, behind this scene is God's action. That the theological reality of life is big and meaningful and deep, that behind things that look just like circumstance is the hand of a sovereign God outworking a sovereign purpose, raising up his chosen to defeat his enemies and to rescue his people. Does it all witness to Jesus? You bet it does. It's not coincidence but David arrived at the battlefront at just the right moment. It's not coincidence that someone overheard David and said, hey, Saul, you should hear what this guy's saying. It's not coincidence or an accident that Saul ended up acting like David's armor bearer. As readers, we know, we know God rejected Saul. He anointed David. We know, we've got an insight into these things that Saul does not. Have. We're meant to see God at work in and through the characters, in and through the details, fulfilling his divinely appointed purpose for his divinely appointed king. And now, I know that some of you today in this room are, to all intents and purposes, only here because of a war. Some of you are here because of what has been done to you and not necessarily what you chose. For some of you, choosing God has meant rejection from your family. For others, saying yes to God has opened you up to accusation, to slander, questions about your motives. It might not be self-evident at all how God has been at work in your history up until this point. It might not be crystal clear what the future looks like for you. It might not even be obvious to you that God is at work in your life at all in this moment. And yet, through the story of David, and although it's a story that is meant to point out how David becomes king and points us to Jesus as the king who is lord of all. David interprets his story as belonging to God's story of salvation. And that's what the story invites us to do as well. You're not the hero. That role has already been taken. It's gone. You're not the hero. But you do get to interpret your life, your background, the circumstances, the crazy things, how did that happen, how did I arrive here, what did that, why, what was that all about? You get to do what David did. You get to think about the good, the bad and the ugly as belonging to God's story of salvation. It's an act of faith and an act of faithfulness. When we were worshiping earlier on, I, Hannah sung that beautiful tongue, and I just—I could see somebody sitting with a pile of broken toys all around them. It was—it was, it was actually—it was an adult sitting with a pile of broken toys around them, and banging their hands down on the floor as if, oh, all these toys are broken. My favourite things, bam! Oh, all this shiny stuff is bust. And I feel like God wants to address us about how we try and add things to ourselves to avoid having to deal with our story. And I know that you do it because I do it. And I'm just as human as everybody. We all add stuff in. We all spin our stories or we buy things or we do things that we think this will distract me this will keep me from having to face up to this or that or the other and I saw in this picture that it was all broken all the toys were broken all the shiny things were broken but we were singing and talking about a treasure a priceless pearl and it's really uncomfortable to be a Christian because Jesus doesn't Jesus doesn't pat you on the head and say there 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 never mind about your brokenness Jesus looks you in the eye and says let's deal with that brokenness let's talk about healing there let's not add a load of things in that are not me that will distract you let's get down to the nitty-gritty of it in effect Jesus invites you into the story of God and the story of salvation And asks you to look him in the eye and to sweep aside the broken, cracked, shiny things that you thought would give you meaning, that you thought would distract you long enough to get on with your life. Jesus has bigger intentions than that. Jesus looks you in the eye. Jesus asks you hard questions about how you interpret your life. And asks you instead to see your life within his Salvation story. David does it in a sense in this story, but David just points us to the greater King, Jesus, the one who brings us into his story through faith, repentance, baptism, brings us into a community, who invites us to participate in the salvation story, who makes us to be his chosen ones in Christ who makes us alert to the reality of God, who makes us sharers in what he's doing. So no, you can't be the hero, but you can be gathered up and made whole and restored. You can learn through faith and faithfulness to see your story, even the rubbish bits that's belonging to God's salvation story. And you can throw yourself down at his feet in surrender and in love and in worship And find yourself receiving purpose and meaning and joy beyond anything that you ever imagined before. If you wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian, I want to encourage you that you can do that here, starting today. You could do it on the 5th of February, I think, here, when we baptize some people in this very room. You can share in the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah find yourself brought into God's story. The God who is over and above all things. The God whose sovereign kingdom purpose is being outworked even through our own brokenness, our own foolishness, our own weakness. The God who fiercely defends his beloved flock and makes them to lie down in green pastures and by still waters and brings them back to their eternal dwelling. Why don't we pray for a moment and then we? Oh hoo, gosh, A <laughs> bit rusty with timing. Sorry about that. <laughs> Let's pray and then we will close for today. God, we love you. Help us to love you deeper. Please break away from us the, uh, the, the the need to add to us to distract ourselves. Help us to stop to push aside the things that we cling to to look you in the eye to receive your healing. Uh, Help us to read scripture wisely as we see your chosen one emerging, as we understand that behind all the ups and downs and the so-called coincidences of history, you are at work. Help us to discern those moments. Help us to live faithfully before you. And as we do, oh God, would you revive your church? Would you make it glorious and beautiful? Would you throw down everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God? Would you build a church here that reflects that wonderful picture in revelation of a people from every tribe and nation and song? In Jesus' name we ask, amen.